Welcome to Ed Spark 21, the podcast from Battelle for Kids, dedicated to capturing conversations and spreading the word to advance 21st century deeper learning for every student. In this episode, Battelle for Kids Vice President Valerie Greenhill talks with Dr. Pedro Naguera, Dean of the USC Rossier School of Education. School districts continue to face challenges with remote learning, social justice issues, and the global pandemic. I asked Pedro Noguera to join me for this podcast to explore the importance of building relationships with students, ways to offer meaningful support to educators, and how we can all work towards equitable, deeper learning outcomes for every student. Here's our conversation. Welcome. I'm thrilled to have as our guest today, Dr. Pedro Noguera, the Dean of the USC Rossier School of Education. So happy to have you back with us again for a longer conversation today. And I just wanted to thank you personally for the leadership that you've provided the field for so many years. We rely so much on your insights around questions related to race and equity and school and district transformation and the way that plays out in the schools and districts that we serve. So I'm just thrilled to be able to have the conversation with you today. Thanks, Pedro. Thanks, Valerie. Great to be with you. So it's been an interesting year. Um, the last year uh, has exposed a lot of the inequities that many of us have been aware of for quite some time, but in ways that are profoundly more visible in some cases, and in some cases even more invisible, if that makes sense, because of the, the digital environment that we're all uh, often working within. I'm wondering about some of the things that you're noticing and some of the insights that you are having rel relative to this unusual year that we are all working within. I think we don't realize fully the extent of the hardships that many kids and families are experiencing during the pandemic. Um, large numbers of kids are in living situations where they really can't do remote learning. Um, it's overcrowded apartments, it's poor internet connection, if there is a connection, it's shared devices, it's lack of support while they're at home, stressed out parents. Um, you know, so, I, I, and then on top of that, there's the economic challenges. People threatened with evictions, um, not having enough to eat. Um, and so, you know, it's not surprising that across the country, we've seen grades plummet. We've seen lots of kids just give up. I know many middle-class kids who have told their parents, they're tired of it. They don't want to do Zoom school anymore. Um, now, I also want to acknowledge there are some kids who prefer it because they didn't like school that much before and they'd rather do it from home in their pajamas. So it is mixed, but I would say that for our most vulnerable kids, this has been a traumatic experience and we're going to have a lot of work to do to bring them back um, and reconnect them to, to school and to learning. How are you feeling about the conversation that's emerging that on the one hand is about being concerned for the, the social and emotional well-being of these young people, assuming we do come back to something that looks like a more normal school year next year, and the, the pressures that are already emerging around accountability and where are students in their, um, in their progress and how are we going to quote unquote, get them caught back up? How are you seeing that tension play out and do you have any insights or advice for education leaders as they confront those challenges? You know, I'm very concerned about the framing. Uh, I think if we frame it in terms of learning loss and in terms of catching kids up, we're gonna end up doing the wrong things. We're gonna end up kind of putting more pressure on kids 
um, kind of drilling down on the uh, test preparation. And I think that's the opposite of what we should do. Uh, what we should do is focus first on prioritizing relationships, on bringing kids back in, making school a pleasant place to be, um, uh, reaffirming the relationships, building community. And then we should really focus on re-engaging them as learners um, uh, and, and making learning fun and challenging and stimulating. We know that inquiry and intrinsic motivation is how people learn, how all people learn, not just young That's people. Right. Exactly. All people. And so, so this, this approach using inquiry and, and shifting to thinking about how to build that, that intrinsic motivation to learn something or go deeper in something is central to the practice. In our schools today, what our leaders describe to us is creating the space and the opportunity to create those environments is incredibly difficult work. It's difficult from a policy and a programmatic point of view. It's difficult from a practice, technical uh, knowledge and capacity point of view. What might you offer in terms of advice for school and system leaders who are seeking to make these kinds of changes in their system so that inquiry and intrinsic motivation to learn is really at the heart of what it means and feels like to be in school? So those who have heard me talk know I often make reference to what I call the technical and the adaptive parts of leadership. And I really borrowed that from Ron Heifetz um, in his book, Leadership on the Line. And, and I think that um, finding the right balance is key. When we're working on building a culture in school um, and a sense of collegiality and cooperation amongst the staff, we're doing adaptive work, not technical work because we're working on the relationships. We're working on, on building a common vision with our colleagues. That adaptive work is so important to moving a school forward because when we work together as a staff, we get more done, right? Um, when we are doing uh, work around relationships with our students, getting to know them, when we are uh, finding ways to um, address discipline and behavior in more constructive manners, that's adaptive work too. So I, I really want to encourage the, the leaders who are listening to this podcast to think about how do you make the time for it? And, 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 and that's an important question because right now, I think many uh, superintendents and principals are preoccupied with the technical parts of their job, the logistics. How do I get screens to all my kids? Which kids do I bring back first? How do we do social distancing? How do we make sure our schools are clean and safe? Those are critical issues. We can't ignore them. But if that's all we focus on, we're gonna miss the bigger picture. The bigger picture is, are the kids really engaged? Are our teachers feeling safe and supported? Are they working together? Those are adaptive questions. And, and the leaders, if they're not attentive to those because they're preoccupied with logistics, are gonna miss the boat and, and things are not gonna go well. Agreed, 100%. The, you mentioned um, the need to, to, to truly support teachers in that work. What does that look like, in your opinion, from a superintendent central office point of view, and or if you have any anecdotes or insights from even a school board point of view, what does it look like if we're really supporting teachers in making this shift? I, I think it starts with um, the, the, those in leadership at the superintendent level, board level, 
saying it, <laughs> saying that we're going to prioritize relationships. We're gonna create a welcoming environment for our kids. We're gonna support our staff to make them feel welcomed, respected and safe, right? So sending that message very clearly and then reinforcing it all the way throughout the system. Um, you know, prior to the pandemic, and this is the reason why I've been advocating that we not return to the way it was. We relied in many places on pressure as a motivator. Uh, I often would say to central office uh, staff, when you show up at a school, are they happy to see you? Do they regard you as a source of support, as a, as a collaborative problem solver, or do they think you're there to scrutinize and judge and tell them what they're doing wrong? I think that kind of top-down accountability is all wrong. It should be that those of us who are in central leadership are there to help. And when we show up, they should be happy to see us because we're there to help them figure out how to do the work. Because anybody who thinks that pressure will solve the challenges facing our schools has clearly not been a teacher before. Right? <laughs> this work is complex, it is not easy. And what we have to do is roll up our sleeves, get into classrooms with teachers, talk to them about the challenges they're facing in reaching their kids. So I, I think if we have that spirit that we're all in this together, we're gonna to work on this together, we're gonna to figure it out together, that we're gonna, it's gonna be a better experience for everyone. I love that. One of, the, one of the more inspiring things I've noticed in some of the work that happens in schools where this is really taking off culturally, this meaning, intrinsic desire to learn among students and the autonomy and the mastery that comes with that and the cultural shift that happens in buildings is often done peer to peer. If, if the environment enables that, teachers who are on the leading edge of making some practice shifts, who are having some success, who are taking some risks, maybe failing a little bit, but learning from that and experimenting more with different things, their colleagues are noticing the effects on students that, that they didn't previously see as uh, students who are really committed to learning or engaged in school. And they begin talking to each other about those practice shifts that are happening. One, one example being in an innovation hour in a middle school where students are, are given the autonomy to choose the thing that they want to develop and learn in the innovation hour. And they have very few rules around what that could look like. And the work that's coming out from these students is profound. And from students that other teachers might be surprised to see, you know, are, are advancing along this pathway. I'm, I'm wondering if you have any uh, advice for, for teachers to think about how they are learning with and collaborating with their colleagues around this kind of approach to teaching and learning. You know, I've been um, a proponent of professional learning communities for a long time. Many districts have them, but not many districts do them well. <laughs> um, and, and we know that we're doing them well when teachers actually want to be in them, want to participate, and can have honest conversations with each other about their work. We need to create small groups where teachers can say, talk about their challenges with their colleagues and actually receive help. Not where it becomes a gripe session, but where teachers say, look, I'm having trouble with X, keeping kids engaged with discipline, uh, with teaching this concept, with getting kids to do this work. And their colleagues either share what they're doing or together strategize about how to approach it. The isolation of our teachers has long been one of the biggest obstacles to improving teaching. 
Think about how many schools we've all been to where we will see one teacher who is just knocking it out the park, whose kids are totally, totally captivated. They're on task, they're doing the work, the teacher's inspired, feeling good about what she's doing. And right next door is a classroom where it's not happening, where um, you know the kids are listless or worse. And um, what we don't know how to do in most schools is enable the teacher who is really strong to be a resource for the teacher who needs help. We need to create an environment where it's okay to say I need help, where teachers are willingly and sharing and, and learning together to improve because that's what makes education much more powerful. When we work together, great schools are greater than the sum of their parts. They're greater than the sum of their parts because we achieve more when we work together. That's great. So I have a question about how you perceive the field of educator preparation in light of this conversation. What are you seeing that's emerging that's giving you hopeful aspirations around how we're preparing our nation's educators to go into the field of education? So, you know, I've been at the university level and uh, one of the things I, for 30 years, and one of the things I've done is teacher preparation. Uh, now as a dean, one of the things I'm really working hard on is building teacher residencies because we know that the gap between what teachers are learning in the university and what they experience in schools is too wide, right? They can learn great theory, but when they, they get into schools and can't apply those theories and concepts, you know, they, they're useless. And then so many districts uh, make it worse because they assign our newest teachers to the most challenging kids and set them up for failure. So. Um, we want to build a teacher residency program where we bring our faculty into schools with our teachers, where our teachers are learning from mentors who really do know instruction, know kids, know schools well, um, so that we set them up to be successful as professionals and hopefully get them to stay in the profession. We need to diversify the teaching profession, but we also need to stabilize it because teaching as a profession takes a while to get good at. And if you have a revolving door where you keep losing people in the first couple of years because they're burning out, we're not going to make any progress. Um, so we're, we're going to have to do this differently. And universities are going to have to be engaged very differently than they have in their communities. There's some universities that have been doing this for a while, and, and, it's, and it shows. I was uh, at Ball State uh, in Indiana a few years ago, and they have a, a great program for uh, their new student teachers called Communities in Partnership with Schools where the students spend a semester in the community um, getting to know uh, the community. This is in Muncie, Indiana, and this is, uh, it was predominantly in the black community. And you had mostly white teachers from rural parts of Indiana going into the black community, being mentored by community members right, in after school programs. And it was so interesting when I visited um, because you know a lot of these kids had, this was a foreign experience, very different. And I said, what's the, been the hardest about this experience? I said, frankly, the hardest thing will be leaving because of the relationships I've formed. I could have never been a teacher in the inner city without this experience. I've learned so much because part of what they're learning is how to relate, how to connect at a human level. And that sounds obvious, but in a society like ours that is so racially divided and polarized, if you can't connect at that human level, you can't teach because the kids can tell if you don't like them. Kids can tell if you're afraid of them. Kids can tell if you don't believe in them. And we live in a society where those beliefs about race are deeply entrenched. And, um, and, and if you don't give 
teachers experiences where they can unlearn biases and unlearn racism, then they'll carry it with them. And, and that will impair their effectiveness as professionals. Thank you for that. The, the, the thread that you've, you've drawn here in parts of this conversation around the acts, the, the, the practice of teaching being about relationships and about authenticity and, and, and really understanding who you are in your community space to create that kind of sense of belonging for your students is as a prerequisite to any type of learning. Um, is so important. It, it, thank you for, for emphasizing that. I'm thinking about you know, where we've been in the last few years and how difficult it has been for leaders who are intentional about dismantling systems of, of inequities, how challenging these years have been, how challenging the last couple of weeks have been uh, in addition to that. I'm wondering if you have any uh, words of wisdom for educators who are seeking to create uh, better and stronger communities of, and senses of belonging for their students who may feel very distanced from uh, formal education at the moment. Any, any insights you'd like to share based on what we're all experiencing right now? So I, I just uh, wrote an article um, for uh, Phi Delta Kappen with one of my uh, grad students, Julio Alicia, um, Alicia about uh, systemic racism. And um, I, I wrote the article because I've, I've known a number of districts have engaged in bias training uh, to try to address the relationships, uh, cross-racial relationships in schools. And what I know from having worked with lots of schools is I've seen very few schools that have improved because of bias training. And I think it's because they, they're, even at its best, when done well, it often does not connect the bias training to the work that teachers are doing in the classroom every day with kids. You know, how am I a better science teacher or math teacher or reading teacher through because of bias training? But beyond that, it's only addressing at best the interpersonal aspects of racism. We have to recognize there are also institutional and structural aspects. At the institutional level, um, there's the tendencies in many schools to assign the least effective teachers to work with the neediest kids, to disproportionately punish the kids with the greatest needs, who often are low-income kids of color. If you don't address those things, you continue to reproduce patterns of inequity. Beyond the school, there are the ways in which poverty and, and historic racism shape experiences. The kids who come from the poorest communities, the kids who are experiencing homelessness and food insecurity come to school often already at a disadvantage. If we can't see that, and if we're not aware of how that's shaping outcomes and experiences, then our schools become useless because they're simply gonna reproduce inequities. And if you don't believe me, look at your data and ask yourself, how often do we see kids who are from low-income families, right? who are poor, who are Black, who are Hispanic, who are Native American, who are poor white, who are achieving at the highest levels? And if when we look at our data, and the answer is, well, very few of those kids are excelling in our schools, then we know we're doing something wrong. Because we have enough evidence out there to know that talent comes in all kinds of communities and in all kinds of, 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 of racial and cultural groups. You know, I come from a family where neither of my parents graduated from high school. And they sent all six of us to college. 
some of the top colleges in the country. And there are many examples like this. And too often, these are people who succeeded in spite of school, not because of school. We want to make it that school serves as the place where we expose kids to more, where we tap into their potential, their talent, and cultivate a love of learning. And so that's, for that to happen, we have to confront the, the barriers and the obstacles to equity. We have to name them and address them. If you don't, then you become complicit in the problem. And I say that not to cast blame, but, but just to merely point out, we have, there are a lot of well-intentioned people out there who have blind spots, who don't even see the ways in which they're perpetuating systems of inequity. And that's the, we gotta remove those blind spots and do the work and do it in a way that's constructive, that's not about blame, that's not about attacking people, right? We had enough of that, we don't need that. We need to be constructive, but as educators, we need to believe that when the kids are with us, they're gonna be treated with dignity and respect. We're gonna bring the best out of them. We're gonna give every kid, every kid, regardless of their background, the opportunity to learn. That's what we sign up to do. No one takes this job as an educator and says, I'm only here to serve certain kids. I don't know a district in the country that says you can, you know, I, 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 it sounds crazy, but I can't tell you how often I go to schools where people will tell me we're really good with kids who don't need much help, right? with kids who are privileged, with kids whose parents are involved, but we're not so good with the kids that need help. You know, imagine if you went to a doctor and the doctor told you that, you know, I'm really good if you're healthy, <laughs> not so good if you actually are sick or are or, or injured. You know, as educators, we are there to make a difference. And what we have to ask ourselves is, are we making a difference? And for whom and for whom are we not? Exactly, thank you, thank you. As we look for, that's wonderful. The, as we look ahead to this new administration, I'm wondering what your perspectives are about that. You know, it could be anything from the role of the federal government in some of these uh, policy uh, uh, issues that are emerging in states around deeper learning. How do we do this at scale? Could be around those kinds of questions, or maybe you have some instincts already about what you're seeing on the policy front from the federal level that you that you think people ought to be looking out for or attentive to. You know, my hope is that the federal government, the U.S. Department of Education, will focus on providing guidance on how to address some of the big problems we've ignored. No Child Left Behind ignored poverty, even though it was staring us in the face. Which kids did we leave behind? The kids who had the greatest needs, right? So now the federal government should, should be really good at saying, this is what we should be doing to address poverty at the earliest. We need universal preschool. We need community schools, you know, and, 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 and really showing how to use these kinds of strategies to break the cycle of poverty. Because poverty is an educational issue. And that's not because poor kids can't learn. It's because when kids come with unmet needs, whether those be the need for glasses or the need for food or for shelter, it impacts their ability to focus on learning. That's obvious. What's not obvious is why we've ignored that. <laughs> why do we pretend that the kids who come from the poorest communities should do just as well as the kids from the most affluent communities when we know the kids in the affluent communities get, not only do they get all their needs met, 
but they have parents at home who are pushing, who are tutoring, who are taking them on trips when we can travel, who you know get the music lessons, who do everything and sometimes way too much for their children. Uh, we have an unlevel playing field and, and that's just the way America is. But to be blind to those inequities makes us complicit in the reproduction of the inequities in our schools. And um, I think we can do a lot better. So I, my hope is that the federal government will provide guidance, not mandates. You know, No Child Behind was about mandates. You're gonna do it this way. You're gonna test this way. Let's reel that back. You know, there should be accountability. There should be standards, but there, but there should be guidance on how to address these challenging issues. And then the states need to get much better than they have been at providing support to school districts and to schools that have been struggling. There's not a single state, think about this, there's not a single state in the country where the State Department of Education has organized itself to help schools, <laughs> to build capacity. What they've done instead is they focus on compliance. They issue mandates, do this, do that. And if you don't, we're gonna punish you in one way or another. That's not helping. And that's one of the reasons why when we, we see states that have taken over districts, how many districts that have been taken over have actually gotten better? I can't think of any. It's a farce. And by now we should know that doesn't work. So when we talk about building capacity, that needs to be modeled at the state level. Right? That's what Ontario did. If you read Michael Fullan's book, Coherence, he describes a strategy that allowed the province of Ontario to help schools throughout the province, but the impact was greatest in Toronto. And that's why today, Toronto is the highest performing urban school district in North America. Because for 20 years, when they saw evidence that schools were struggling, they didn't use threats to get improvement, they sent help. <laughs> they said, you are struggling in math, we're gonna send some math coaches to work with your math teachers, because they got it. The performance of the kids is a reflection of the weakness or the strengths of the staff. And you don't improve outcomes simply through pressure. You improve it by helping people to get better at what they do. Terrific. So one of the things that you've um, highlighted for us today in this conversation is the, the focus on belonging, the focus on supportive capacity building rather than mandates and pressure, the intentionality about inquiry as a, uh, we know that students who are engaged and want to learn and that's how they learn. These are all aspirations that we, I think, uh, anyone listening to this podcast is probably very familiar with, with, with appreciating those, those sentiments and those aspirations. What makes you hopeful right now about where we're going in education that maybe includes those things? What are you seeing that, that you feel very optimistic about at this moment. There are lots of shifts happening in the field, not just because of the pandemic, but certainly in part because of the pandemic. Talk a little bit about what's, what's bringing you some hope and optimism looking forward. So especially before the pandemic, when I traveled frequently throughout the country, I was encouraged by what I saw happening at the local level, right? That, that is at, in the communities. Um, and, and it doesn't matter, red state or blue state. I'll give you an example. I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa's had universal preschool before most cities in the country. 
high quality preschool. It's had community schools before most schools. And when Oklahoma I asked, you, so I, I, I co-signed you know, right? <laughs> right, so this is not a red state, blue state issue. This is about community leaders. In, in the case of Tulsa, it was the mayor's wife who was a Republican leading the effort to build community schools. So this doesn't have to become politicized like everything else in the country. If we work together on our local needs and see each other as neighbors and, and as, as, as being interdependent, I think we can approach the work differently. That gives me a sense of hope when we see that kind of leadership. Um, when I look at what's happened in Washington, I get very discouraged and it's hard to, to not be discouraged, but uh, I find hope at the local level. Uh, uh, can I share a story uh, since you're Please. from Oklahoma? Um, I was given a tour of Tulsa by a member of the city council uh, several years ago, who was a retired police officer, Republican. And he took me to Greenwood Greenwood is the section of, of Tulsa that was burned to the ground, uh, the black community in 1924. Um, and he said, you know, and then he took me to the community center that was built there. He said, we wanted to get reparations for this community because of what had happened. He said, the, all we got was this community center. He said, but now we're still working to get this community what it needs and deserves through educational opportunity. So it was interesting to hear somebody that you wouldn't have expected to get it at a very kind of basic level, that historic opportunities have been denied, we can move forward by addressing them through education. And that to me gives me optimism. That's a wonderful reflection. And, and especially in light of what the community of Tulsa actually has gone through in the last few years, I agree that the, the profound shifts in just my lifetime on that part of our history in that state uh, and our nation has been really, really interesting. So thank you for that story. That's really, really good. Um, this was a great conversation. I, I, I wanted to mention one, one last thing, which is there, the, the pandemic has in our experience in our network highlighted for so many communities what is and isn't a priority when it comes to serving students. And in some places, I'm sensing a great deal of optimism about what we mean when we say students are engaged, what it means when, it's, when we say our students are learning, and the shifts in how we think about what it means to be a critical thinker, what it means to um, pursue strong instruction, what assessment actually looks like now. Those of us in 21st century education have often been pressing against these questions of what does it mean to have high quality instruction? What does assessment that is high quality and effective for learning look like? Those are, are, are topics that we're used to debating and working on very deeply that now um, are even more interesting because of how different the learning environments are. I'm wondering if you have any optimism about the fact of the pandemic shifting things in a way that might be semi-permanent around you know, really old school ways of thinking about what assessments should fun function as in a school system, right? I, I'm just wondering if you're sensing that as well. 
I, I'm sensing that many educators want to do things differently. Um, what I'm not sure of yet is whether the policymakers uh, are ready for it uh, and ready to embrace change. And so uh, my hope is that you can get some policymakers to listen to these podcasts too, because um, in too many cases, policy has been the limitation. We have um, uh, really prioritized the kind of uh, accountability measures, high stakes testing, and ignored how to create conditions in schools that promote teaching and learning. Um, we're in the middle of a, a crisis in terms of our democracy. Uh, and we've said from the very beginning that education was key to a democratic society. Well, education's got to step up now to prepare kids for a world where people are easily manipulated by social media, right? So kids can't distinguish or adults can't distinguish what's fake news from what's real news, what's science from what's a, a, um, a conspiracy theory. Education's got to provide kids with those tools. Um, so. We're not gonna do it if we stay within the confines of preparing kids for standardized tests. Because de democratic practice requires kids to apply what they're learning in the real world. It, gets, it requires them to see the world and understand the problems they're facing, that we're facing. Uh, I would recommend if everyone who hasn't seen it to watch the new David Attenborough series, mm -hmm. Planet Earth on climate change. It, it, it's sobering, but it also is optimistic about providing guidance of what we can do. Imagine if we had all kids thinking about what they can do in their local community to begin to address climate change. That, that sends out, I think, um, good reason for optimism and hope for the future. So, uh, you know, I, I remain, I've been in this field for a long time and I stay in the field because I do believe education's our best resource, our best asset for creating a more free and just society. What a wonderful way to summarize, you know, the the, the conversation and and end on an optimistic note. On behalf of all of us at Battelle for Kids and in our networks, we appreciate your role in supporting our public education institutions the way you have for so many years. We're just so grateful to have you as a partner in this work, and thank you for your time today in this conversation. Thanks, Valerie. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Battelle for Kids thanks Dr. Pedro Neguera for this important conversation about equity and deeper learning. The EdSpark 21 podcast is a production of Battelle for Kids. Battelle for Kids collaborates with school systems and communities to realize the power and promise of 21st century learning for every student. Visit bfk.org to learn more. The music heard in this podcast is On Fire by Sasha Inde, copyright 2019 and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All other content in this episode of EdSpark 21 is the intellectual property of Battelle for Kids. Other podcasts and blog posts from Battelle for Kids can be found at bfk.org.